Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased indeed to be speaking with Joel Furches, who is an artist, a behavioural psychologist and a Christian thinker, whose website can be found at, funnily enough, joelfurches.com, and uh, who is also in charge of a Christian apologetics organisation called mentionables uh, which uh, i thought i would mention and uh, i want to ask more about in just a moment but uh, <laughs> sorry about that you have to find some amusing things to say in podcasts anyway thanks ever so much uh, joel for joining us on the program it's great to have you it's my pleasure now i don't know whether this is going to come out in the edit i will try to edit this out but uh, just in case any of these things slip through the editing process i'm going to tell listeners that there's a delay between joel and myself because joel is on the moon and there is a delay of about four or five seconds getting the signal back to here in the UK. So I will try to remove as many of those as I can. Um, I suppose, first of all, I ought to be absolutely upfront about this. Is it true, Joel, that you are on the moon or are you, in fact, in some other location, perhaps in the middle of the countryside somewhere? Well, I'm very far away from you. So there's that. <laughs> but but, you, you won't, uh, you're yes, not telling I'm, me anything. It's, it's all secret. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm on a farm in the middle of a countryside that's uh, far, far away from anything. Actually, uh, Baltimore's been in the news uh, a great deal. Probably you've heard about it as well. I'm about five miles north of Baltimore. Okay, well, that's a lot more believable, so we'll go with that. Um, anyway, we're going to be talking about a number of things today. Um, I suspect basically in the area of Christian apologetics, um, about the you know the very concept of apologetics itself to some extent. What does it mean? Is it important? Is that even a helpful term? Wherever the conversation takes us, really. But uh, mainly, I've invited you on to discuss your ongoing research. Now, how shall I describe it? Uh, roughly, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but roughly I'm going to say that you are researching the, the patterns that you are discovering in the reasons why some people deconvert from Christianity and become atheists. Obviously, we'll get a, a clearer view of that in a minute, but um, how would you briefly characterize your research? So I call it a case study because, unfortunately, I don't have the budget to send out surveys and gather data in that respect. So I have to look at what these individuals have expressed or what has been written about them. And then from those, I, I draw data points. So uh, case study is probably the best way to characterize it. Mm. You know, the things I'm interested in are what their religious background is, what kinds of things they believed in the past, what sort of uh, questions came up or what was the process that they went through in changing their worldview, and now what do they believe or what are their actions after the changing worldview? Mm -hmm. So I look for those data points, I put them all in a chart, and then I see, you know, I draw out the statistics of the similarities and differences. Okay, and you are seeing some patterns in there, which we'll, we'll discuss in a moment, which is very interesting. Um, before we get on to that, I'd like to ask you just a couple of things about you personally. Um, now, as I was introducing you, I mentioned that you are a behavioral psychologist. A couple of questions here. Could you tell us what it is you do with respect to that and what connection that has to this kind of research? Uh, as far as the behavioral psychology goes, I did my first work with abused children in a group home where they lived after they had been removed from their homes by social services. And as you might imagine, children who are routinely abused have some very severe behavioral problems. Uh, their behavior is shaped by the abuse or in cases where they were uh, abandoned, 
meaning that they just weren't interacted with, they haven't developed the sorts of um, the capacity to interact and respond to social cues. So hmm. although, you, of course, you want to nurture them and provide kind of that kind of care for them, most of what you're doing is trying to shape their behaviors to um, be much more healthy. So that's the first work that I did. Hmm. Uh, after I got my master's degree, I worked in a disciplinary school, let's call it that, where students were placed, this is adolescence, they were placed after they had been removed from their schools for severe behavioral problems. So it wasn't a correctional facility. They weren't locked on campus or anything. It was a regular school, but they were there because of severe behavioral issues. And so in addition to education, one of the things that we had to deal with was, you know, how do we shape their behavior? How do we put them in a uh, state of mind where they can return to the general education environment and succeed in that environment. Now, given that background, I've recently uh, been accepted into a PhD program for applied behavioral psychology. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that's interesting because you you did put a post on your Facebook page about something to do with a PhD, and I wasn't sure whether it was real or not. There was something odd about it. What was that? Well, I mean, it was a it was a screenshot of an acceptance email that I received from the university. Huh. And of course, you, as you might imagine, when you're accepted into a PhD program, you're enthusiastic enough to share that yeah, on yes. social media. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay, so how does your behavioral psychology interest connect then with your work in apologetics? Does it at all? Now, that's a very interesting question. When I began Christian journalism, my specific interest was apologetics. So, of course, in addition to following a variety of outlets of Christian news to report on it, I also followed atheist news. And so I settled on this podcast that seemed like a very intelligent podcast that had a wide range of topics related to skepticism and atheism and so forth. And on the panel of that podcast, there just happened to be a professor of psychology who did specifically psychology of religion. And so when I found myself responding apologetically to atheism, I often found myself responding specifically to the psychology aspect. And I just happened to have a background in psychology, so I could make those connections. Hmm. And so that's what, how it started out. Right. Then, you know, after I moved on from that, I found that I'm still interested in psychology of religion. And I find myself, whenever I see people acting a certain way in, in a broad spectrum, the question that comes to my mind isn't necessarily, well, how do I respond to those arguments? It's more, where did those arguments come from? Mm -hmm. Why are they behaving this way? And so then I start digging into the data, and that's just my instinct. Yes. Uh, that's what's developed over the years with my background and what I've engaged in originally. Yeah, that's a very interesting dimension, an important dimension. I think we'll come out further in our conversation, actually. Um, and I think part of what attracted me to what I know of your work, which, of course, I admit is not a great deal, but there was that element that I was aware of. I must ask you about the mentionables. Is it the case that all of you involved in that organization have a similar view on how apologetics works? Are you asking the same sort of deep questions about what are motivating people's arguments and the like? Without getting into the entire story, mm -hmm. uh, which is a really good story, okay. we uh, almost came together accidentally. And so one of the things that I really uh, like about the mentionables, which kind of separates us from other apologetics organizations, is that when we take on a problem, we do it in a panel format, and we each come from a sort of different background and perspective. Mm. So what we pride ourselves on is delivering a range 
of responses that covers sort of a theological spectrum so that the person gets a more broad variety rather than a consensus on an issue. That's not to say we never agree, but we do approach it from a variety of angles, which is helpful. And of course, my angle is the psychology angle, the psychology of religion angle, which is one that you frequently don't get yeah. in the apologetics responses. Okay, well, I know one of the people, other than yourself, who Nick Peters, of course, has been on this program, but there is two more people. Is it four of you involved in that? Uh, I, I could lose count because uh, we have a catalog of apologists that we promote, okay. but from that catalog, there's a handful of us that actually participate in all of our projects and material. So, you know, if I were to pause to count that up in the top of my head, I'd say maybe six of us. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Um, obviously, I'll make a, a link to the mentionables in the show notes. Now, let's return then to your ongoing research. Now, to begin a deeper conversation about this, I want to quote back some words to you from what you wrote on Facebook, which, of course, this is going to be a pithy little quote that uh, no doubt will need a lot of unpacking, but I'm going to do it anyway, just as a way of starting this. You wrote that uh, if you want to characterize your research, then it would be, quote, dogmatism plus guilt equals atheism, unquote. How does that kind of summarize the sorts of things, the sort of patterns that you're finding? Well, one of the things that I've noticed is that with these cases, I would say 100% of them cite the sort of wooden inheritance kind of church background where, you know, it's insisted upon that every word of scripture was practically dictated by God. You know, and one of the ones I run into consistently is this sort of uh, strict young earth creationist concept is just really pushed by almost all of these. There are some that didn't mention it, but most of them did. But also you've got this kind of focus on, you know, well, the one I'm running into recently is the sexuality thing. You know, this kind of push to be completely pure and sort of guilted into, you know, keeping your behavior pure sexually, you know, and this is something that's cited by them as something that drove them away. So, of course, I have to bring that up. Uh, but legalism, that's probably where I'm coming from there. This idea that God will condemn you for this, that, or the other if you don't fall in line. So, yeah, this wooden literalism and legalism, let's say. Okay, so those are the kinds of patterns that you're finding. And then you say that typically in the cases that you're looking at, people find reasons to doubt those beliefs, whatever, reading things, talking about things with people, their life experience, and then these beliefs begin to unravel. And out with that goes more fundamental Christian belief as well. Um, are you finding that that inevitably leads to atheism? Or are you finding cases where it just leads to agnosticism? Well, here's the thing. Typically, because they come from these very strict, legalistic, fundamentalist backgrounds, they carry that attitude over into their um, post-deconversion, let's call it. So rather than just kind of coming into this sort of apathy, let's call it, about a religion, where they can just sort of cut that out of their lives and move on, no, if anything, it more intensifies in their lives. There is this lingering echo of fundamentalism that moves into their uh, deconversion area, and then they become very um, enthusiastic, let's call it, in a negative way, to sort of cut down religion and, you know, attack that thing in their past. 
And is there a tendency to attack the very areas that were of concern to start with? I mean, you mentioned young earth creationism, a certain perhaps naive view of biblical inerrancy. Do they tend to home in on those particular things and attack it from the other point of view? Oh, yes, 100%. Absolutely. Now, before I go into that, let me just qualify what I, I had said in my last response. When I'm going for these studies, I'm going for visible atheists that are speaking out about their deconversion process and have published that online or have been interviewed about that, which biases the study a bit in that direction. I wouldn't, from this information, come to the conclusion that everybody who comes from that background and loses their religion then becomes one of these arrogant, enthusiastic atheists that go after religion. Uh, unfortunately, because of the nature of the study, those are pretty much the only people that I'm getting information on. Right. Um, that's a little much to say that that is a universal factor of deconversion. Right. Having said that, yes, because these points are so prominent in their deconversion, you know, suddenly science is very important to them, which makes them extremely um, uncomfortable or upset about this young earth creationist or anti-scientific background, as they would term it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about young earth creationists. I don't want to attack those people or make them think that I have a problem with that. Right. But unfortunately, that's what you deal with when you're dealing with atheists. Right. I wanted to ask you that very question. At any that rate, so there's question. that. Sorry. I think we've got our delay there <laughs> working against us. Yes. So uh, what I was going to say is that there's that, and then the you know the reason that they cite this purity culture is because you know they suddenly have come to this much broader understanding of sexuality, and because of that idea, you know they've sort of absorbed the cultural or political idea of sexuality. Then that you know the fact that they came out of this background that was very restrictive in that sense uh, makes them upset about that. And then, yeah, the legalism, of course, that tends to carry around to the, the atheism. Now they're extremely legalistic about their atheism or their politics. They, they've taken the same attitude and just transferred it to their current belief. Mm. Yes, I want to return to this point about young earth creationism, just as an example that you brought up. You say that you're not against that in itself. Would I be reading you correctly then to be saying something like, taking something like young earth creationism to be an absolute, treating it as if it's a fundamental of the faith is the thing that is problematic, irrespective of whether it's true or not. It's not appropriate for that to be put on a par, let's say, with the resurrection or the existence of God and this sort of thing. Is that the basic problem with that kind of thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dogmatism in my research means that, you know, you, or this wooden uh, literalism means that you've been taught that all of these are bricks that hold up Christianity and that if one is removed, then the whole thing collapses. Yes. So, you know, unfortunately, if you come to the conclusion that Jonah didn't get swallowed by the whale, suddenly God doesn't exist. It's just kind of those ridiculous leaps that are taken. Yeah. Um, now, as far as the young earth creationists, mm. I have become agnostic myself in terms of origin. Uh, I don't embrace position, but I did come out of sort of the same background I'm describing. So I don't want to, unlike these atheists, I don't want to attack that background or call no. these people ignorant or wrong, because these are views that I once held myself, and I haven't taken them off the table. I just now don't endorse them. Yes, which is very interesting. In itself, I'll ask you, were you taught that young earth creationism is extremely important, or was it left as something which was a matter of debate between believers? Yes, I was taught that it was extremely important. In fact, um, 
you know, when I was a child, I was taken to these Ken Ham uh, Answers in Genesis types conferences by my parents. And one of the things, the very beginning of the speeches they would give was this illustration of sort of a fort that represented Christianity and then the atheists attacking the base of the fort, which is labeled creationism, uh, indicating that creationism was the structure or foundation that held up Christianity as a whole. And that's a very damaging approach in my experience based on the research I'm doing. Right. But you, so this is interesting that you didn't therefore conform to the patterns that you're finding. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, because I interact with the material, I interact with apologetics, I enjoy the conversation. I even enjoy what atheists have to say in the conversation between atheists and theists. I think that you take in the whole conversation before you come to conclusions. Mm. And given, you know, its controversial nature and the fact that I am not a biologist or scientist or geologist, I don't find myself qualified to speak to these issues of origin and development. I'm okay if I were to find out that the Darwinian evolution were the actual framework by which life came to be, that's not a problem for me, but it is an extreme problem for people who come from this sort of, you know, fundamentalist background, let's call it. Can I ask you a little bit more about what you mean by biblical inerrancy? Because this is a very tricky term, because um, I think, you know, a lot of Christians, maybe most Christians would claim that the Bible is inerrant in some sense. What kind of inerrancy do you have in mind? Well, when I use the word wooden in front of that, hmm. I mean this classical notion in some uh, respects that these people who pen the scripture were penning it completely under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that rather than penning their own words, they were receiving each word via prophecy, let's call it, from the Holy Spirit and just transcribe it almost in sort of an automatic writing sense. You know, now I assume that some would allow that sort of the personality and characteristics of the writer came through in some sense. But even so, it's God inspired to the extent that, you know, it's all but written by God himself. Okay, so would I be right in thinking that such a view would not be sensitive to things like cultural context, literary genre, different types of literary technique in different cultures and that sort of thing, and, and that those might cause people problems when they're thinking in terms of it being a single author, i.e. God. Why would God be expressing things in such different ways? Would finding some of these difficulties with Scripture then make Scripture begin to unravel in such a person's experience because they're not sensitive to these different functions of language? Yeah, in in a sense, if taken far enough. Um, so, for instance, uh, again, I hate to keep coming back to Genesis, but there are scholars, one of them's on the mentionables, that would say that this is more of like a temple text or, you know, a, a response to Egyptian creation myths or something. And that would be anathema right there. Now, I don't think there would be a problem for them to, you know, look at the Psalms, for instance, say, well, this is Hebrew poetry. This is a Hebrew poet expressing his adoration to God in the cultural context of the day, because nothing in the, in the Psalms is literal. But then if you were to transcribe it to, say, the histories, like First and Second Samuel or something like that, and say that, you know, they're writing in sort of a biography format that was common to that day, you know, this idea that it might not literally every word be true, some of it might be exaggerated or reinterpreted through a cultural context, that might be problematic. 
Right, yeah, that sounds uh, similar to the kind of conversation I had with Dr. Mike Lycona a couple of years back when he was talking about how the gospel writers rearranged and arranged their material. So, you know, a gospel writer might say, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did that, and that was just a, a style of communicating the story in an efficient way, part of the way it was written at the time, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that, in fact, literally Jesus did do then this, then that, but maybe that kind of thing would be parallel to what you've just said there. Um, it's possible. I don't know if a literalist would have a problem with, say, the book of Mark arranging items out of order. Mm-hmm. I mean, certain ones might, but, you know, this idea that it was written um, so much as a biography, but as a report on various activities in Jesus' life. But uh, something like, say, a gospel author, you know, putting words in Jesus' mouth, uh, for instance, when Jesus turns right. uh, to his disciples in the book of John and said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He wasn't talking to the disciples, which means that he was probably talking to the reader who is, you know, reading the book and reassuring the reader that they have not seen yet their belief is true. And to say that John put those words in Jesus' mouth would be anathema. I see, yes. I think a similar example came up actually in that conversation where we were talking about Jesus saying, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, etc., and that maybe that was a compression, possibly, that John wrote to express the kinds of things that Jesus did in fact teach in different contexts. So that perhaps would be the kind of thing that people might balk at. Yes, absolutely. Um, for instance, Bart Ehrman had a problem with the book of Mark, you know, making a historical mistake, if you will, and that sort of sent him on his path towards deconversion. And it's very interesting in such cases because the argument can be made that if, in fact, someone like John is writing that way and using a particular technique consciously to do that, are we not misreading it by insisting that it should conform to our own modern understanding of what inerrancy might be, of literal writing might be, when in fact it was perfectly legitimate for a writer such as John to do such a thing at the time? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Yes, here is the way that, a, again, I'll use the term fundamentalist, wooden inheritance, however you like to characterize that. Here's the a problem for that approach with them. The problem is that there is this idea that when the scriptures were written, they were written for everybody across time throughout culture so that a child in China could pick up the scriptures and derive from it the exact same meaning as you know a child in Czechoslovakia or a Bible scholar in Germany. You know, everybody should be able to read the scriptures and come out with sort of absolute literal truth that could be understood across time and culture. So this idea that you would have to know the background of it in order to get the actual truth or meaning out of it sort of indicates that it could be deceptive or misleading, which, you know, scripture could not possibly be in this mindset. Yes, which uh, on the face of it strikes me as absurd, but um, there we are. Okay, can I ask you about the other aspect of this? I mean, you also, you had guilt as well. How does guilt function in this? Guilt is not true across the board. I mentioned Bart Ehrman a minute ago, uh, and his journey involves sort of, again, he had this very uh, strict inerrancy background, and then that was called into question, and then he began questioning other aspects of his belief and eventually came to the Uh, at least agnosticism, but lost his faith. Now, guilt wasn't really built into his, but some of these younger converts, or some of the more recent ones too, there's this sort of clash of cultures as the left and right of culture get further apart and become more um, Mm. entrenched in their views. Like, for instance, one of these was a girl 
who went to college and she got a boyfriend and then she started sleeping with her boyfriend and she felt this deep sense of guilt because, you know, her Christian culture would condemn such a thing. And so at some point she started finding ways to rid herself of the guilt. And to do so, she had to start chucking some of her backgrounds and beliefs and it all kind of fell apart in a landslide as a response to that. You know, I mean, engaging in other activities outside of the Christian bubble is what I call it, because there's sort of this isolationist tendency uh, in Christian culture in the U.S. where, you know, you have to remove yourself from the secular culture because that's evil. Mm -hmm. And then you push outside of that bubble, you start feeling guilt, and then you try to justify the guilt, if you will. Mm. Yeah, that actually connects to somebody I wanted to ask you about, uh, Joshua Harris, uh, because obviously he's been in the news recently as having moved away from what he would call Christian belief. Um, I don't think he's become an atheist. I think he's open to perhaps different ways of being Christian. He's looking into that, but um, very high profile author, pastor, and he does come from that rather isolationist background, puritanical background. Have you looked into his case very much? Well, of course, based on my research, I've been uh, very interested in his case, and I've been following it. Um, Because he's not renounced any belief in God, I haven't been including his information in the study because I want to profile a very specific, you know, belief that has come from this. But nevertheless, his is taking a course that is very similar to several others, especially in recent days. So, for instance, The name's slipping my head, but he was a high-profile case, the gentleman that uh, did A Year Without God um, that was in the news several years ago. I can't think of the name either, but yes, I recall, yes. Uh, You know, he eventually, of course, became an atheist. And the transformation that he went through, or his path towards atheism, uh, echoes Josh Harris very much. Another example would be um, Derek Webb, who was the front man for a Christian pop music group called Caveman's Call. Uh, Derek Webb went through a very similar path towards atheism as what we're seeing with Josh Harris. So given the trends, I wouldn't entirely be surprised if it end up in the atheist camp, but of course we hope that's not the case. Absolutely. One of the things he writes, or rather was written about him as having mentioned in a Guardian piece, uh, was the term deconstruction. And this apparently is a word that's used quite a bit by people who are transitioning from one belief to another. I find this a rather tricky word, a tricky concept, because, I mean, I personally think, you know, some level of deconstructing your beliefs is important. We should examine why we believe what we believe, but you can take that to a ridiculous level. I mean, you can doubt anything, can't you, to the point where you you can't believe (laughs) anything about anything. So um, it, it is a tricky one. Where would you draw the line in the process of trying to understand what you believe, questioning what you believe, such that you don't end up with absolute nihilism of knowledge? I can't speak to everyone. The approach that I've found is helpful is to engage in a conversation, hear both sides of the issue, but do so from a detached uh, perspective, which I don't know. Maybe it's my background in psychology and sociology. I am able to withdraw my personal biases from the conversation, listen to both sides, and then take in those information. And I'm very hesitant to jump to conclusions, but I do learn caution on certain issues. 
So there are certain things that I'm very cautious about and the others that I'm fairly confident about. So, for instance, the resurrection, I, I have a great deal of confidence in that, having listened to all sides of the argument and hearing everything. Otherwise, again, jumping to conclusions, including that God doesn't exist, is just a, a bit extreme in my view. But unfortunately, you see a lot of emotions uh, coming into play. And again, there's these fundamentalist backgrounds, this idea that you have to sort of have absolute certainty about your beliefs. The minute that you're not absolutely certain, then you end up jumping to another absolute certainty that, say, God doesn't exist. Yes. Um, and, and that's something I didn't mention when I was talking about these fundamentalist backgrounds, but it's been brought up in case after case that I've studied. It's this idea that you're absolutely certain or it's not true. You know, this is kind of extreme. Sure. You know, unless you can have absolute certainty about what you believe, then you can't believe it at all. So that's that's a damaging view as well. And I, I would suggest for the church that we engage in a little intellectual humility about the things that we hmm. teach. Would you say that we should have or shouldn't have absolute certainty with respect to even primary doctrines, primary teachings, such as you mentioned the resurrection? Well, I think that in terms of Christianity, it's a tricky question because, of course, some of what we believe is the basis for a relationship with God. So, for instance, I am absolutely certain that my wife would not cheat on me. Does that mean that she would never cheat on me? I don't know, but because of the nature of our relationship, I have that level of trust in her. Mm. And I think that having that level of trust in God, based on what we know, is not a damaging thing so long as it's done in the context of a relationship with God. But take that outside of the relationship and make it sort of this behavioral doctrine or, you know, I preach to my children that absolutely they must believe X, Y, Z while they're living under my roof. Yes. Or, you know, if people are being kicked out of the church for disagreeing about a doctrine or another, that becomes uh, unhealthy and damaging. So as regards advice to believers, you could boil it down to do not take as of primary importance those things that are debatable. Leave as primary those fundamental doctrines about which we can have this as you describe it, a relational confidence with God. But that does not include some of these secondary matters which should be left on the debating table. And if we don't do that, we can create these unhelpful fundamentalisms that can lead to the kinds of problems you're describing. Yes. So, I mean, in the New Testament, there's all these cautions against false teachers. And I think it comes from that as well, because there's this idea within the church that sort of developed that if somebody comes along teaching something that you were not taught before that contradicts something you were taught, that this person must absolutely be a false teacher and anathema and of the devil sort of in these uh, apostolic concepts of false mm. teaching. And so some of the extremism probably is born out of that, you know, this fear of being led away from the faith or being taught by false doctrines and so forth. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about the modern church, and, you know, this carries over into what I talked about with the mentionables, is that we have sort of a freedom to explore and to disagree. When I go to church, everybody has their Bible. They open it up as the pastor's speaking, and they compare what the pastor's saying against what they're reading in the Bible. They have that freedom to investigate the claims themselves and to disagree. I mean, we can come to some kind of agreement that we're all Christians, uh, even though there's different denominations that disagree about some doctrines, like infant baptism, so to speak. So, yeah, this freedom to explore and disagree in the church is healthy for the church Absolutely. rather than being unhealthy. 
Yes, absolutely. And that's something that we find with the Bible study that we have here at our church. We don't have this attitude of saying, this is exactly as it is all the time. You must believe X, Y, and Z, although there are these beliefs that we share in common. Um, there's a great deal of latitude within the group on these secondary matters. And I think that I agree with you. I think that is a very healthy way to go on. Um, can we go back to that term deconstruction? Could you tell us a little bit more about how that term tends to be used in this context? Well, you know, that's a pop atheist term because, you know, you've had these whole movements like ex-pastor where they're trying to offer a community in the atheist field that replaces the community they once had as Christians or pastors. Because most of that, most of these atheists came out of the service directly. They weren't just churchgoers. They were pastors or they were evangelists or things like that, which is interesting. But anyway, getting back to the term deconstruction, uh, it has a very specific context in these circles because you'll see, you know, I've listened to a number of these interview shows now where they're interviewing a former Christian and they use the term deconstruction to describe this process by which they would bring up some kind of doctrine they believed, they would discard it, they'd bring up another, they'd discard it. And so eventually they just kind of ripped the whole house down and decided that, you know, it didn't exist in the first place. And that's deconstruction. It's literally deconstructing a belief. Mm-hmm. Before I listened to those shows, I was using the term tinkering. And this is a term I've pulled from other psychological research where they refer to this case where, you know, you're taking in new information. In, in the study I was reading, it was um, – Uh, They were researching people uh, who were religious and then got on the Internet and saw views that differed from their own. And what they would do is that they would take this information and they wouldn't reject it. They'd try to build it into their previous beliefs, and they called that tinkering. Hmm. So I was using that term to describe this idea of you come up against some pushback against a belief you have, and so you modify your beliefs to take into account this new fact that you've come across. So the process I was using was tinkering, but I think deconstruction is more of an aggressive process because they're tearing it down. They're not trying to rescue it. They're uh, trying to abandon it. So, yeah, there's a difference between the two. Okay, so in what you've described there, it's a modification of your belief by this new information, and that process continues to the point where it all falls down. Um, What I would expect people to do if they had a strong foundation would be to push back on that and ask the question, well, is this new information reliable? Can I deconstruct it itself in Christian terms? So that does suggest a, a weakness of foundation in teaching for those people. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because, first of all, I was surprised to learn that a lot of these people were, you know, were in seminary about the time that they started to question their beliefs. Um, Mm. Again, I said that, you know, pastors, evangelists, uh, you know, preachers, kids, things like that. These are people very entrenched in their faith. And, you know, many of them say, well, I learned apologetics. I practiced apologetics, etc. before all of this Mm. happened. And so it's not as if they weren't familiar with arguments. I think there's more going on than just that. Um, My impression, and again, I haven't done enough research to back this up, but my impression is that there was this building tension in their lives. And then they have what I call a trigger, which is a question or, you know, an encounter that suddenly kicks off this process of tinkering or deconstruction, and then it ends in a loss of faith. And so this trigger, if you will, becomes sort of the crack in the glass that allows the whole dam to empty, uh, to rush out. So I'm not certain that it's a lack of foundation so much as it is 
some other factor that was pushing them to reject their belief. Mm. And again, I'd like to dig into the data before I can support that, but it, it seems reasonable based on a lot of these cases that I'm studying. Okay, so where would you say you are in your research? You're obviously not in a position yet to publish anything, but um, how much more work have you got to do? At this point, I've got a handful of cases that I still need to look at. I want to get a certain number under my belt before I start gathering the data. After I've finished those studies, I specifically need to chart out the denomination they had and then the kinds of beliefs that they came. You know, now that I've got a catalog of fundamentalist beliefs that I'm seeing echoed throughout these stories, I want to chart those specific beliefs and then come to, uh, you know, uh, percentages of how many of these are represented in the case. Uh, then I'm going to look at data points for post-deconstruction, if you will. Uh, and there's a lot of things I want to get data on based on trends that I'm seeing. But honestly, you know, I can speak to the trends that I'm seeing already. I just can't give you the percentages of the data just yet. Sure. And will you be writing a book on this or just a paper or what's the plan? This all began about three years ago when I published a series. You know, again, I was a Christian journalist for a while. So I published a series on atheists that became Christians. And I was doing it, you know, for the journalism because it's sort of a human interest piece and so forth. And it got a lot of attention. But the thing was, after I did all these cases, I was seeing these trends. And of course, the psychologist in me perked up interest. So I went back and I did a case study across the articles that I'd written. Then I published a case study online for atheists that convert to Christianity. And the whole time I was doing that, I was getting uh, pushback from atheists that were reading my articles who were saying, well, are you going to be fair? Are you going to do studies of Christians that become atheists? With sort of this mindset of whoever gets the most converts wins uh, thing, which was not (laughs) my point. But yes, I was actually interested in doing a reverse case study. So that is what I'm doing now. And what I'd like to do then is to do a comparative case study between the atheist to Christian conversion and the Christian to atheist conversion to see uh, what kind of differences and similarities that that might case. Now, having said all of that, in answer to your question, since I started this with the atheist to Christian conversion series, it's gotten so much attention that I've actually had requests to get the whole thing done and then publish it as a book. And I think it would be very popular given all the requests I've had. And, you know, my agent said it was probably my best idea and so forth. My only problem, the thing that might keep me from publishing this as a book, is that I'm publishing people's biographies, specific Uh, modern people's biographies. And I haven't gotten all of their permission to do so. So I doubt I'd ever get to the point where I get everybody's permission to publish their biographies. Uh, So that might keep it from being a book. But I'll see what I can do. I'll see if I can work something out that I can publish yes. because it would be very popular. Yes, maybe you could publish something that's a little drier that doesn't include personal information, but maybe they're rather disappointing from a marketing point of view. Yeah, my uh, my agent wouldn't go for that. I mean, they're very interested <laughs> in being distributed across the popular market rather than just appeal to the intellects. Yes, well, the best with that. Very interesting. Um, can I ask you a couple of questions about apologetics more generally? Please do. Um, obviously, you and I both believe that apologetics is important, and we would both include not just the sort of typical arguments for belief in God or arguments about Scripture, etc., but something of what we've been talking about today in trying to avoid 
some of these extreme positions we've been mentioning. However, what I find here in the UK is that there's quite a reluctance to engage with apologetics in the churches generally. I assume that it's pretty much the case in the US. And if so, why do you think that's the case? May I ask answer this from a psychology point of view? Uh, yeah, please do. Okay. So I'm going to give you some background that I think has led up to this. Um, in the pre-Enlightenment period, you had this institution where churches and religious people were founding universities, and they were developing the education, and they were founding schools, and they were putting in you know, medical centers. And so a lot of the intellectual culture was driven from sort of a religious or a specifically Christian ideal. And then during the Enlightenment, you had this rejection of religion. So for instance, in the uh, French Revolution, you had them actually executing priests and religious people. Uh, and there's the statement that we're going to hang the last politician with the intestines of the last priest. You know, man is the measure of all things. So humanism was born and they started erecting actual statues and idols to the intellect, to reason. And so, you know, post-enlightenment, there was this broad rejection of religion. And, and, you know, that's when you started getting this more liberal doctrine where we reinterpret scriptures through this rational uh, lens and try to remove all the supernatural elements and, and look at it as purely literary and historical yeah. uh, development. And at that point, there was a receding of religion. Well, then at some point beyond that, we had, I, I, you know, I, I know in the U.S. we called it the Great Revival. I don't know if they had something similar in the U.K., but there was this return of religion. It was this, you know, rebirth of religion. But the problem was that because now the government and the university and culture in general was rejecting religion on the grounds of reason, you know, this revivalism very much appealed to the emotion. Um, so we had these more of a Pentecostal or emotional rebirth of the church where they appealed to things like worship and, and this inner feeling of God and so forth as a reactionism to the Enlightenment. And so as a result, that kind of echoes down to the church nowadays. Mm. So in the studies that I've done, you see that the people you find in church are largely uh, intuitive thinkers, meaning that they're people who th uh, have sort of quick reactions to thinking and they have brief insights into things. I hate to characterize it this way, but they, they think with their feelings. And so after centuries of this sort of uh, well, yeah, and then uh, schools, because I have, in addition to the psychology, I have educational degrees. And in schools, there's been this problem, and we're addressing it now, but the ben, it's been this problem that they really only teach to this uh, analytical type thinking. So, you know, when you get a lesson in school, the lesson is broken down so that somebody with an analytical style of thinking can respond to the lesson and can uh, come to the conclusions and, and function well in the tasks, so that people with more intuitive type thinking, who are no less intelligent, they aren't as successful in school, but they're very successful in church. And so they're self-selecting systems. As you rise through the academy, you weed out all of these intuitive thinkers, and you end up with purely analytical thinkers at the top, uh, versus as you rise through the church, uh, it pushes away these analytical thinkers because it tends to appeal more to this worship, mm. feeling, inner sense of God type thing. And so after centuries of this dichotomy between church and academy, there's this broad 
rejection in the church of something that echoes these more intellectual uh, institutions or reason because they want to appeal to this worship and they're more successful in doing so because the broad population of the church isn't analytical in mind. They're intuitive in mind and they kind of reject, they push all back against this intellectualism. So I would guess, based on my research, that the general idea of rejecting uh, apologetics in the church is that it, it echoes the academy. It echoes this more academic mindset towards the Bible, and that's been seen as dangerous at this point. Hmm. And I suppose from what you say there, it would be that a lot of leaders tend towards this more intuitive style because, as you say, the tradition tends to favor such people. But that wouldn't necessarily be true of those people in the congregations because they would maybe they'd be born into that situation. Let's say they might be actually quite analytical, but that analytical side is not encouraged. If that's the case, then, short of stripping the churches of more intuitive thinkers and putting analytical leaders in, in those positions, how can we possibly remedy the situation? Well, I think that the thing that I've seen has been very successful is to have adult courses in church, things like Bible studies or uh, adult Sunday school classes or, you know, meetings during the week that have an apologist or somebody who looks more analytically at the scriptures and, and the background, which we know is possible. At one point, society really did have analytical people who were still orthodox in their theology. Hmm. You know, give these courses and classes, and that'll give those people who are interested in that uh, a place to go so that you have the worship for the people who are more intuitive that connects to them more, and you have some of these almost academic classes, if you will, available to those people who are more attracted to the reasonable and analytical side of things. Mm. Okay, what about the actual term apologetics? Do you think that's helpful? I mean, it's a term that I use. I've used it several times in this conversation. I've got it on my website. Uh, you use the term, but I have noticed that uh, a lot of atheists pour scorn on the term. So I'm wondering whether perhaps it's a term that we should use at all. Well, they would, wouldn't they? <laughs> they would, um, but uh, the sound of it, isn't there? It sounds like apologizing for something. That's the weakness just there, straight away. Well, here's what I think rescues that a bit. Um, for about 20 years now, we've had this resurgence of atheism in the mainstream, which was originally termed the new atheism, although I think that mm. term has fallen out of style at this point. <laughs> but this happened, and... What we got in the church was a reactionary boom in apologetics. So, yes, of course, originally that was a very uh, sideline thing that you know wasn't well recognized in the church or even the institution. But in reaction to this aggressive new atheism, the church had to look for something. And apologetics was dormant within the church for all of these years. And suddenly, in desperation, the church had to return to something that was a tool that had been available to them since essentially the first century. <laughs> um, yes. And so, yes, apologetics started out as a very fringe thing, and it was a term that wasn't well recognized. But now in society, you see the term apologetics for practically anything that people are defending. Mm. So it's not as if nobody recognizes what that means. Uh, Atheists pour scorn on it because it's in reaction to them. And, well, I realize um, that, yeah, yeah. But... You know, I mean, it's broadly recognized that this is not mm -hmm. apologizing. 
I'm not sure you're quite right there. I think it does have a negative connotation. Irrespective of what you're talking about, you are perhaps being a propagandist. You know, a propagandist in the negative sense. You're saying, I mean, this is an actual quote from somebody. It's defending what you know ain't true. I think it has that sense about it. Okay, yes. I understand that the term apologize is something that you could easily connect to apologetics. And I don't know a better term that we could transition to. The only saving grace I think we have is that now, if somebody is a real fan of Star Wars and somebody else doesn't like the uh, new Star Wars movies, so they have this argument where one's trying to defend it, they're recognized and they'll even be termed as a Star Wars apologist. This uh, term apologetics has been creeping into the culture to the extent that it applies to pretty much anything you're defending and offering reasons for. So the fact that it's now a broad term that is used for practically anything means that it's kind of becoming appropriated and accepted by the culture at large. Well, I hope you're right. And maybe that's a recipe for saying, let's use the term as much as possible. But I I still think when somebody describes a person as an apologist for something, that is an attempt to delegitimize that person. So I just wonder whether it still is a helpful term. Um, But maybe we should just use the term as much as possible and neutralize any of its connotations. Um, Do you think there's a concern at all that... Well, if I may... Yeah, do. Yeah. (laughs) Go on. Sorry, this delay is a bit awkward, but go on. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Uh, So you see kind of the same thing happening. For instance, fundamentalist, which I've been using several times throughout this conversation, that used to refer to somebody who was orthodox. It was somebody who applied, adhered to the fundamentals of Christian belief. But then over time, the people who are sort of against religion have turned that into a derisive term for people who are too dogmatic, too aggressive in their belief and too entrenched. And so as a result, and, you know, they have these ridiculous beliefs about talking snakes and talking donkeys and so forth, uh, and they won't be budged from those. So now the, the term fundamentalist has become derisive rather than descriptive. And so we've more or less switched to the term evangelical, you know, which is a substitute for what fundamentalists used to say. And now evangelical is on the route of slipping into the derisive to the point that it can no longer be used because it's mm-hmm. now it's being associated with many of the things that fundamentalists were associated with. Yeah. So my point in saying all of this is that any sort of descriptive term that Christians will use to characterize themselves or what they do is easily turned into a derisive term for those who oppose Christianity. Now, apologetics might be a little easier to turn into a derisive term simply because it sounds like apologizing, mm-hmm. but whatever term we used it would eventually end up that way anyway. Sure, but part of a strategy could be to change the term so as to neutralise that effect. Well, if you've got a better term, I'd be happy to hear it, because I don't know what it is. Okay, I shall think about it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I wanted to ask you a question about whether you have any concerns that a lot of apologists are kind of just talking to each other, whether a lot of apologetics is not actually connecting with people who are outside of Christianity. Um, insofar as apologetics does connect to people outside of Christian culture, in many cases, it seems to fall foul of a kind of divisive culture. Generally, it just ends up with arguments and people talking past each other. Um, I suppose my question is, has apologetics become too in-house and technical? Well, yes and no. It's a complex question, but uh, let me put it this way. If you were writing a book in defense of the Christian faith, 
the type of person who would pick up the book and read that book is probably going to be a Christian who has questions about their faith. Uh, and this is what we see with apologetics. When a defense is made of the Christian case, the person who's most interested in reading or listening to that defense is going to be a Christian because it reinforces those things they have questions about. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing within the church. Uh, moments ago, we had a conversation about sort of this uh, rejection of intellectualism in the church, and apologetics has been a response to that that's been fairly successful in recent years. And I don't think there's anything wrong with giving, and, and possibly several things right, about giving believers reasons for why they believe, and even things like scholarship and historical background and things that might break down some of those sort of dogmatic beliefs we've been talking about. So uh, apologetics might be an answer to that as well. But in terms of the public forum, unfortunately, I think that's a cultural thing that we haven't had in the past. Yep. So if you look back a hundred or so years ago, when somebody had an argument to make for a position, they might publish a paper on it or something in the newspaper. They might give a speech about it, and everyone would read it or attend the speech, and then a discussion would ensue. Um, but in modern times, in fairly recent modern times, um, any attempt to defend a position with which someone disagrees is shut down. It's either shouted down yes. or it's just pushed out of the public forum so that nobody has an opportunity to interact with it. So, for instance, in the UK, we have a show, Unbelievable, which is actually a very helpful show, I feel, because it legitimizes a discussion between, broadly, between apologist and atheist, although, you know, more than just that, it's, it's not just atheist and apologist talking. But my point is, it's two people that disagree, that sit down and have a reasonable discussion that's well-moderated and listened to by a broad population of people all over the world. And that's a fantastic format, and that's what we should be re returning to. Because, yes, Christians become insular and turn into a what I called the Christian bubble a moment ago, where they break off from culture and they refuse to listen to or abide anything outside of that Christian bubble. And the same thing is true with political parties. It's true with atheists. It's true with just about anybody that adheres to a ideology now, uh, any other ideology outside of their own is anathema and deserves to be shamed and shouted down. And it's a current cultural thing, and I'm not sure that apologetics can get around that easily. Yes, indeed. Perhaps we should make sure that some form of apologetics is, as it were, woven into our lives in a sort of non-confrontational way, so that in our speaking, our preaching, or whatever it is that we're doing, we are involving some element of apologetics, perhaps without even calling it that, in a way that would help people to see the reasons why we believe what we do. Um, May I respond to that? Please do. Yeah, go on. Okay, so in response to what you were just saying, as I said, my very first study was atheists that became Christians. And the patterns I'm seeing with the Christian to atheist conversion are pretty Appearance, you know, there's there's a very recognizable pattern in these cases, which is somewhat surprising to me. The same was not true with atheists that became Christian. Uh, obviously, there were some similarities in the cases, but each was a very interesting personal journey uh, undertaken by the person. However, one thing that was almost universally true in all of the cases was that they encountered a Christian that broke down the sort of characterizations they had of Christians as being, you know, obnoxious or ignorant, and they formed some kind of amicable relationship with this Christian, and that, because that broke down 
their preconceptions about Christians and Christianity, they became open to exploring those things. You know, it's interesting that of all the various differences in the journey, the universality of meeting a Christian, a reasonable, kind, and intelligent Christian that gave them a couple of pushbacks against their ideas was instrumental in these conversions cases. So what you're saying is not unbacked up by the data. Indeed. Excellent. That is a very important point. Uh, But what I was about to say um, was I just didn't want to leave this subject of apologetics without asking you the question as to what your general position is. I mean, would you describe yourself as more of an evidentialist or a presuppositionalist? Or do you see that the two can be married together? I mean, they're often looked upon as being opposed to each other. But um, I don't necessarily see that's the case. What do you think? Well, from a philosophical or theological point of view, I I see the conflict. Uh, However, from my background and my field, I find that evidentialism is most helpful when you're talking to a Christian, because now they have a ground, they're developing a foundation and a groundwork that supports those things that they believe. When they believe that X, Y, Z happened in the Bible, and then archaeology digs something up to confirm that, that's helpful to the Christian. Mm -hmm. Now, evidentialism tends to be more rejected by atheists because, you know, they're mm. they're going to be hostile to Christians. Now, if I sit down with somebody who doesn't uh, accept Christianity, um, typically I'm not going to bust out the evidentialism. I'm going to uh, pull out presuppositionalism because in having a conversation, leading back along their assumptions about things like human worth, uh, rationality, mm. morality, and things like yeah. that, questioning back along those lines and making them look at the groundwork assumptions that they use in their everyday reasoning is very helpful in, in pushing them to a point where they have to say, yeah, there has to be something greater that all of this comes down to. So I find presuppositional exceptionally helpful in conversations, you know, especially just impromptu conversations mm. uh, with people who are questioning Christianity, but evidentialism works more effectively with Christians who want a groundwork for their belief. Yes, tailoring your approach to the kind of person that you're in dialogue with, absolutely. Uh, You wrote a book, didn't you, about apologetics. Did you favor one approach over the other, or did you cover both in that? Well, when I wrote the book, I was teaching a young adult class on apologetics, and I had one shot at the class. And uh, as I sat down to consider what I should be teaching in this class. Maybe I should do a broad survey of apologetics in general, uh, focus on one thing, answer a specific question. I I sat down and I thought about it and it was like, if I could give somebody one apologetic argument, what would it be? And it occurred to me that when it comes down to Christian belief, you can diffuse a lot of apologetics arguments, but so long as Christ rose from the dead, Christianity is still true. You know, even if they debunk the entire Old Testament— as long as we have Jesus rising from the claims are verified, somebody has to have risen him from the dead. So God exists. That takes care of the existing argument. And Christianity is true because the claims of Christ are verified. So, you know, what I eventually came down to is, you know, you can learn the ontological argument or the teleological argument or all of that stuff together, but that'll lead you possibly to a God, but then you have to argue the Christian God. If Christ rose from the dead, a God exists and it happens to be the Christian God. So my book operates from this notion that the most important apologetics is the person of Christ, because if you defend that, not only have you defended the existence of God, you've preached the gospel in so doing. 
that's what I focus on. And I use the scholarly arguments. I also pull arguments from Old Testament prophecy. And then I also transfer into ways of sharing and conversing with non-Christians about your beliefs. Mm -hmm. So it has sort of an element of Greg Kokel's tactics built into it as well, uh, which, you know, touches upon a presuppositional approach to an extent. But yeah, I mean, it's mostly an evidentialist book about the case for Christ. And I guess from reading your articles on your website, you are writing in such a way that, you know, the layperson can understand. Because I've noticed that you've, you know, obviously you're well read, and yet you write in such a way as to avoid as much as you can technical words that might get in the way. So presumably the book was written in that kind of way, was it? It was, yes. Excellent. What is the name of it so that I can put a link to it in the show notes? Well, given that uh, The Case for Christ was central to apologetics, it's titled Christ-centered apologetics. Okay, right. Okay, I have a last question here. This is kind of fun question, really. Uh, I noticed on your Facebook page that you had put out a question about witty signs outside churches. We call them, I don't know whether you call them this, we call them wayside pulpits. And um, yeah, your question was, do witty signs work? Or are they uh, problematic in some way? Something like that, anyway. Uh, What are people saying? What kind of reaction have you had to that question? Because I was quite amused by it. Well, uh, you know, I got people arguing both sides of the end. That that article was an assignment for a publication I was writing for. Right. But at any rate, my conclusion was that th- th- because they don't take their beliefs seriously, they tend to be ridiculed by non-Christians, and at most they're a source of laughter for Christians or an, a source of embarrassment when they see how non-Christians are treating them. So my response was, yeah, that's probably not the approach we should take. But then some people, uh, you know, said that we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously and that those give them a chuckle and, you know, they still take their faith seriously. So Mm. we had some people defending them on grounds that I was being too critical and too serious about it and other people that came to the same conclusion I did. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, I certainly need to be very careful what we do with respect to that because uh, we, we had a church here. About a couple of years ago, where they put out a, a wayside pulpit, and the message was such that the person who'd written it didn't realise that it was a double entendre. And we've got uh, a college nearby, all the students going by, and I'm absolutely sure they all understood. They all saw the double entendre there. It's extremely embarrassing. So whatever we do with respect to that, we've got to be we've got to be careful what we do. Um, anyway, thank you ever so much, Joel, for coming on. It's uh, been an extremely interesting conversation. Uh, lots of thoughts I've not really encountered before. Um, perhaps it's because of your psychology background that you're asking questions in ways that i wouldn't naturally ask so it's yeah it's been very interesting indeed um we've mentioned your book your website and of course if anybody wants to go to your website to look at the services you provide are these professional services there's a link isn't there on your tab can you just briefly say what your services are certainly so because of my background in journalism i i've become an editor i do academic editing but i can pretty much edit anything and uh i'm an artist sketch art and uh, ink art, <laughs> right. all kinds of art. So uh, I will do that uh, as a service that I provide. So I've, I've actually inked some comic books and uh, also comic strips and newspapers and things. So I'm, I'm happy to consider jobs about that. I also do book reviews. That's something I've done professionally as a journalist. And, uh, you know, I continue to do that for anybody who wants to provide a book for me to review, author interviews and things like that. So, yeah, if you've got a book you want to promote, I'll help you with that. If you want something edited, I can do that. And if you want something drawn, Mm -hmm. I'll do that. 
<laughs> Excellent. Right. Okay. And just to be really facetious right at the end, you have written a lot on this thing called necessary world theology. And I did say to myself, well, perhaps I'll ask Joel about that. But then uh, when I read a little bit more about it, I realized it's actually very, very intense theological stroke, philosophical, and perhaps we'd better leave that for a different discussion. And you agreed before we went on. Yeah, that's probably the case. Anyway, I will uh, just just for the, for the sake of the interest, I will direct listeners to your website to look at some of those articles to do with necessary world theology. Uh, we won't talk about what that is at the moment, uh, but it is very interesting, at least posing questions in one's mind uh, worth looking at. Thank you ever so much, Joel, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Well, I greatly appreciate that. I've had a fun time having this conversation. 